Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Francisco Weber, founder of Cortical.io, a startup that has applied tools based on hierarchical temporal memory, or HTM, to natural language understanding. While HTM has been around for over a decade, there aren't many companies that have released products based on it, at least compared to other machine learning methods. Numenta maintains a community site where showcase applications are listed. Weber's company has been building tools based on HTM and applying them to big text data in a variety of industries. I hope you enjoy the episode. I'm here with Francisco de Sousa Weber, general manager and founder of Cortical.io. Welcome to the data show. Yes. Hello, Ben. Thanks for having me. So before we talk about uh, your company and your what your guys are doing in terms of AI and natural language understanding, let's uh, give the audience an idea of how you ended up doing what you're doing now. And as I look at your LinkedIn profile, what jumps out to me is that uh, you were not necessarily in machine learning, but you were more of a, a software developer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, when I when I finished school was uh, in the beginning of the eighties. Uh, of course, I uh, asked myself, "What am I gonna study?" Basically, um, and uh, I already at that time I was uh, sort of interested in everything that's interesting, uh, as long as, as it's uh, uh, somehow in science or technological areas. And so the main question I ended up with is, should I sort of study more the natural science uh, uh, side of things or more uh, the uh, physical or even informatics, as it was called, uh, computer science in in, in Austria then? And so for some reason, I already started uh, uh, programming at the time. Uh, uh, I said, okay, it's uh, I think I can sort of teach myself uh, to improve as a programmer, but uh, anatomy and physiology and all these things uh, are definitely not things that uh, you can easily teach yourself. So I decided to study medicine, which uh, was a very general and very broad natural science uh, thing at the time. And I earned my money to actually go to university by writing software. Yeah. So that I I kept doing both things, if you want. Yeah. So that's interesting uh, because I've run across many people who came from or are from uh, data science and big data, and then Mm -hmm. uh, they stumbled upon uh, interesting applications in genomics, Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. they ended up uh, learning more of the basic science you need to uh, to really understand what's going on. Yeah, I basically started uh, very low with the fundamentals, if you want, of the approach. And I actually grew with the data. So I was always like uh, the database guy among the medical guys at at the university hospital where I worked. Um, And like that, I basically grew into handling data of all sorts. And uh, one part of the data were, for example, um, uh, medical reviews or commentaries uh, that were uh, registered. So I had very early already been confronted with uh, text or natural language uh, uh, kind of of documents. Um, And I started uh, in a very early and uh, primitive way in working with the SQL servers, trying to parse text uh, using SQL and things like that. Um, And that actually grew over time and uh, brought me more and more into what uh, then in the early 2000s was called uh, information retrieval, so to say. And uh, that's 
basically where I made the switch. I, at some point, I, I left uh, the, the university uh, because um, there were some uh, research fundings were cut in Austria at some point in time. And I said, okay, uh, it's so hard to get uh, reasonable money to do research. Uh, I tried to generate it myself and I started uh, a software company um, and uh, ended up then with a startup basically uh, working in the field of patent data of patent informatics um, and that was uh, I liked it a lot because it involved uh, some scientific knowledge uh, but also of course the data science or the, the information science part of it and I tried to always sort of tie this together uh, and it was if you want also the origin for me to look for an alternative um, because uh, while I was sort of growing into the field, I learned more and more about the limitations of the of the existing approaches. Um, and I always thought, okay, but there has to be uh, a way of properly uh, processing language. Uh, we humans do that. And so I, I, that, that's basically where uh, my uh, research started, if you want, that basically led me to Cotecleo. Uh, so it's uh, interesting because uh, I've, I've uh, met many, many uh, data engineers and data scientists like you who uh, really cut their teeth on unstructured or semi-structured text and uh, yeah, and basically yeah. uh, they learned everything they needed to learn on their own either mm -hmm. by reading papers or by just trying out mm -hmm. uh, software libraries or even implementing libraries on their own based on what they've uh, read in papers so but then mm -hmm. uh, at some point the tools of course get better and better and you can focus mm -hmm. on solving the problem you want to solve, right? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, absolutely. I mean, um, there is, uh, in my view, there is a, a very fundamental uh, issue that we sort of uh, tried to work uh, around. So that was basically, um, as I said, in the beginning of the 2000s, when we had uh, a more reasonable uh, processing power available, um, what turned out um, as a problem in the beginning, namely the lack of knowing how to uh, represent the data properly. Um, we said, okay, then if we can't find a way of properly representing it, then let's just model it on a, on a statistical level. And that basically worked so well that everybody turned over to sort of creating statistical models of all sorts. And people have started to experiment with all uh, different ways of, of, of modeling the, the behavior of, of, of language. And it, it, it worked because, I mean, uh, uh, language has uh, a big number of uh, statistical aspects to it, but uh, unfortunately, it cannot be fully explained uh, by statistics. That's, I think, true for most of the natural uh, phenomena. Uh, I mean, a, a very similar story, basically, in, in, in the field of pharmaceutics, where in the 70s, 80s, um, the pharmaceutical approach was basically to uh, fly over to the Amazonas forest, uh, bring in a couple of uh, not so well-known plants, and in the labs, let's cross-match the plant uh, substances with all sorts of uh, diseases. Uh, and then let's make some statistics to find out which one uh, works well. Uh, so again, this worked well up to a certain degree until those statistical models sort of pushed so high in the in the in the costs on the cost side because you needed to do millions of experiments. And nowadays this was basically overcome by actually understanding 
how the pharmaceutical mechanisms work. Yeah, And by understanding them, suddenly they could do things like a 3D molecule modeler, where they actually prepared the virtual molecule already in a way that it actually has this very specific pharmaceutical uh, uh, effect. And nowadays, the new molecules, if you want, for, for uh, remedies of all sorts, they are more built than they are found. Yeah, And uh, I, I think that uh, something very similar will happen uh, in the data science domain. Uh, the more we find out about the, the basic uh, uh, functioning for, of things like language, for example, the more efficient we will become. Interesting. So we'll get back to this topic uh, in a few minutes because I'm interested yeah. in this too as well. But let's now uh, fast forward your journey. At some mm -hmm. point, you encountered the work of Jeff Hawkins and hierarchical temporal memory, right? And yeah, then, and then And then yeah. that, uh, as, my, as, as we've discussed in the past, I think that inspired you yeah, to yeah. Uh, learn more about that particular technique and then extend it uh, into applications that you're interested in, which is made mainly in natural language understanding. But for the audience out there who aren't familiar mm -hmm. with HTM, hierarchical temporal memory, at a high level, what is it? Mm -hmm. And uh, how does it differ from other methods? Specifically nowadays, of course, people talk about deep learning. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, so uh, the hierarchical temporal memory theory uh, is fundamentally um, an explanation for how the information processing in the human neocortex actually works. So the human neocortex is this uh, outer part uh, uh, of the, so the, the, the gray matter, if you want, uh, um, uh, the outer part of the brain where the actual uh, conscious thinking happens. And uh, as it turns out, uh, neuroscience has uh, found out a certain number of characteristics. So uh, in terms of uh, architecture of the uh, cells that are used and how they are configured and things like that. But what was unclear for uh, a long time, so to say, is uh, how does the actual processing of the information, which is obviously done, how does that work? And Jeff uh, has this uh, very uh, grassroots interest in um, actually finding out uh, how this works. I mean, there are things like the discovery of the fact that the, the whole surface of the brain is actually a sort of endless number of repeated smaller modules, if you want. Yeah. So it turns out uh, that uh, regardless if you uh, hear something, you see something, you smell something, there is always the same algorithm that is sort of captured in, in these modules uh, that is processing this data. So that is the, uh, the, the, the hierarchical temporal memory basically gives the explanation of this uh, algorithm that is repeated all over again and that does all the computations that actually happen. So there are and, a couple of uh, things uh, mm -hmm. jump out. One, so it's a theory. So to what extent is it also something embraced by the mainstream neuroscience mm -hmm. community? One, and yeah. and, and secondly, so, and secondly, yeah. um, I guess it, this goes back to what you said earlier, which is uh, the the premise here is if you understand this mechanism, uh, how mm -hmm. the brain works, then it will improve your algorithms. Mm -hmm. Right. So whereas uh, there are other people who 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 approach it as, you know, we don't mm -hmm. need to copy what the brain works. We can be inspired 
by how the brain works and not necessarily mimic it uh, closely. Yeah, I mean, that that is, of course, true. Uh, we can uh, try to be uh, smarter than evolution. There is always reason um, to do this. I mean, we have uh, uh, many fields, so to say. For example, in aviation, we don't fly like birds, but we now can have birds that weigh uh, 100 tons and they fly. But nevertheless, we have at least first to understand how the mechanism works. Yeah, it's. I mean, again, for the for the example of flying, I mean, uh, engineers have tried to uh, create planes by having some flapping wings until they found out. Okay, it's not actually about the flapping; it's about the profile of the wing that uh, produces the effect uh, that we want. And from there, it basically accelerated engineering power uh, tremendously. Yeah. So, but we are on on our end. We are still stuck in. In, in very fundamental things. So uh, before even if you want talking about the algorithm, we don't even know how the data is supposed to look like that I want to feed in my algorithm. And the other thing, so you asked the difference between um, the HDM approach and uh, neural network as we know them from, from machine learning and deep learning. Um, the, the So both of them have the neuron, if you want, as a basic unit, which uh, undisputably is sort of the basic building block. But in, in the case of uh, neural network, in the classical neural networks, um, those neurons are just uh, mathematical entities. So uh, even on the functional level, there is no such thing like um, a cell that has uh, weighted, uh, uh, weighted transfer functions, basically, um, uh, to map inputs to outputs. Yeah. So uh, the, the difference uh, for the HDM approach is, in fact, to try and keep the degrees of freedom that the biology provides you. So what can a, a, an actual neuron actually do? And based on, on this uh, biological um, limitations, if you want, we have to accommodate the possible algorithmic steps that we can associate with it. And this might sound uh, cumbersome in the first approach, but by uh, giving yourself these constraints, it sort of guides you to something that if you look at it afterwards, you have the idea, you have the impression, okay, this was the only possible way. Yeah. So by uh, uh, basically taking away everything that is not uh, biologically, uh, biologically feasible, you remain with those few blocks, so to say, there is only one way to arrange them properly. And that's on a, on a very sort of superficial way. That's the way how, how Jeff constructs uh, the theory. And the theory it is because it's not complete yet. It is not yet a end-to-end -end explanation of the mechanism. But the parts of the mechanism that are uh, already explained, they are verified by implementing them as uh, software, basically, by saying, okay, we understood this a part of the circuit, let's say, we now implement it in software that actually simulates the behavior exactly that way. And then you can start making experiments and you can test, so to say, the, the theory that you have created so far. And that's fundamentally what Jeff is doing since uh, many years uh, in, in the context of Lumenta, uh, where he's sort of scouting uh, explanations uh, in the field of, of, of biology and tries to understand them by building them uh, as, as code. 
and and that code is actually accessible. So um, there is a whole community already of people uh, also experimenting with it and putting it uh, or facing uh, different kinds of problems uh, in front of the algorithm. And it has, has already sort of proven that it is uh, useful in the sense as it's capable of computing things that would otherwise be extremely complex to compute. So a couple of follow-up questions. One, how does uh, the HTM theory tie with mainstream neuroscience? Yeah, as I, as I indicated already, so there are certain, let's say, anatomical characteristics, like the fact that you have these columnar structures um, um, in the in the neocortex, that you have well-defined inputs and outputs from different layers of 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 these uh, of of these modules. And to some degree, it was even possible to sort of predict the existence of a certain kind of neuron that has to be there because it uh, was, so to say, the computationally missing in the model and it turned out that there was actually this functionality basically detected in uh, biology that was sort of predicted from a uh, conceptual level so that's that's uh, some sort of, of, of fourth and back but basically what happens is that all these uh, biological information that is generated in a large number of experiments is of course hard to sort of boil that together to sort of uh, extract uh, the aspects that you need to see uh, to interpret them in a sort of algorithmic way. Right. Yeah, so that's a lot of meticulous work to figure out these things and to try and find support for some hypothesis in different sources. And so it's a very meticulous work uh, that needs to be done and that needs a lot of expertise. So, uh, so, yeah. so HTM, right? So T stands for temporal. And as yeah. I gather, that's an important aspect of HTM. Yeah, that's a, ver a very fundamental aspect. So uh, the HTM theory has, I would say, two fundamental differences from the general uh, perception. So one is that there is time encoded uh, basically uh, in the in the stream of data itself and the fact that the system only is connected to a stream of information and it has in an online fashion basically uh, start uh, to understand what's actually hidden in the data and what the system might want to uh, extract to react for example uh, to that data. So that is uh, that is an aspect, and the other is that whatever source the data comes from, it is always encoded in the same manner. So there is always this what is called a sparse distributed representation, which is a very large binary and very sparse vector, and everything is encoded into these sparse uh, patterns, and a whole part of the algorithm depends on the fact uh, that the data is properly uh, sparsified, so to say, to allow certain uh, mechanisms to occur very efficiently. And uh, that, that's one aspect. And the other aspect is that the, the brain is not a processor, but it's actually a memory system. It's just a different kind of memory system where storing information is literally processing. And uh, what the brain stores and so the HTM uh, also stores are sequences of patterns and if certain 
sequences of patterns reoccur, the system tries to memorize them stronger, so to say. And in, for future patterns, when uh, a specific input is coming along and the HTM has seen part of a sequence like this, it can actually predict uh, what next pattern will be coming in. And if it has properly learned and if it was sufficiently often exposed to that kind of sequence, uh, the prediction will be correct. So the brain is a memory system yeah, yeah. That, that seeks to... So first of all, uh, as you emphasize, in HTM, the brain is a memory system. So it's storage yeah. first and yeah. then and then pattern recognition or second right? yeah yeah exactly yeah. so it it whenever a pattern comes in uh, the output is accommodated immediately to best fit the input pattern and that's the actual computation and the the fitting of the data is defined basically by the position if you want where it is actually stored in this field of memory yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's also very uh, locational in, in my understanding. So as, as far as I have um, sort of got through that way of encoding, much of the relationship information and much of the semantic payload, how I would call it, is linked to some spatial pattern uh, and which makes perfect sense if you see that the the, the neocortex is this dinner napkin size of uh, sheet basically uh, and depending where you go uh, different functionalities uh, are involved yeah so so the spatial thing is very very important for the actual meaning of what, of the data that is uh, uh, processed so for uh, data scientists who want to consider using HDM. As you know, mm -hmm. um, when people start evaluating technology, one of the things they look at is, uh, you know, what's what kind of community is behind it? In other words, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you look at other techniques like deep learning, there's many, many frameworks, software tools mm -hmm. and frameworks. There's mm -hmm. now many resources, examples, and things like that. So, well, what's what's the state of those sorts of things in HDM, and so is it easy to get started using HDM? Yes and no. I mean, uh, it's easy in the sense as every bit of information that relates to it and that has been uh, created by Numenta or by someone in the community is basically accessible. So it's a very transparent uh, thing. On the other hand... Accessible um, meaning open source. It's open source. You can download everything. You can uh, just join the community and uh, ask questions. There uh, is a lot of training and 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 getting started material available. Uh, so from that point of view, it's not difficult. It might be difficult um, on a conceptual level, especially for those with a lot of experience, because many things behave differently than you might have uh, been used to. Yeah. So you. If if you if if you have sort of uh, uh, several years of practice and the neuron always used to be something specific in your mind and now suddenly you have to actually change the functionality of that 
name neuron to something else that might take um, sort of um, more effort if you want uh, to adapt than for someone who has not so much experience and, and who just wants to start and exploring these areas. Uh, my impression is that these people sort of very easily find their way into the into the HDM constitutionality uh, because it's but uh, the fact that it's so modeled around the actual brain uh, basically makes everybody some sort of expert in intuitively understanding how this works. Yeah, so this is something um, that every human who uses his brain can sort of connect to the approach because you find things that you somehow understand or you or they sound plausible to you because you feel you okay. I I, I do similar things when I think or when I do things, where. Whereas to actually understand or sense, if you want, um, how a deep learning network works, that's very hard. It's very abstract philosophical concept, so to say. And it also takes time to actually conceptualize this, to, to be able to play around with that and, and experiment. So, yeah, it's just a very different way uh, of approaching things. And basically, if if a person is, um, is uh, sort of uh, tempted by always trying new things, then uh, that's definitely something where to go. I mean, it's... Uh, maybe, uh, maybe, said, maybe we can work with you guys and the Menta and start coming up with tutorials. And Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the point is that um, at some point, Jeff decided to have sort of uh, a company structure for his uh, research work. And so they have been sort of producing a lot of this kind of, of, of documentation. For example, in an academic framework, uh, it's not so easy to create a community and treat a community and uh, bring in uh, collateral information and so on. So I think that's already a very important and, and good beginning. Uh, and hopefully other commercial entities uh, will join in to sort of make this uh, more popular because I think that it's very dangerous to sort of focus on sort of just a part of the of the possible spectrum because we might miss very important aspects uh, that uh, yeah then need to be rediscovered somehow so you you mentioned something earlier that reminded me of uh, work that other people are doing so you said at some point you realize language cannot be explained by statistics uh alone and uh, mm -hmm. you need some understanding of fundamental mechanisms so mm -hmm. does that mean that hdm in some ways requires how do you put this uh, so deep learning in some ways uh, people describe it as requiring big data a mm -hmm. big model and so mm -hmm. of course with big data and a big model you need big compute so Absolutely. is hdm yeah. more efficient in some ways you, um, you need uh, less. You need less of the data to get uh, more understanding of what's going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. So theoretically, I think it uh, needs orders of magnitude uh, less uh, computer power. The issue, while it might still be uh, uh, compute intensive, is because 
uh, in the computer, we don't have the building blocks like we have them with uh, with neurons and 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 columns uh, in our uh, brains. So what we need to do when we do software is to actually create some sort of simulation of what happens there. So there is sort of an in between. Uh, a step to do, which of course um, sort of consumes uh, some of the of the computational power. It's like running a virtual machine on top of a physical machine uh, always needs a little little more sort of uh, computing power than running, uh, let's say, Linux on a on a generic machine. Well, what about um, uh, what about uh, <coughs> the amount of data you need before you detect uh, some, let's say, causal yeah. relationship or some. Yeah. some or formulate some uh, understanding of the problem yeah so there we sort of come close to my terrain so to say uh, because in this world of hdm i'm actually with with our work i'm not focusing so much on the algorithm because there is this uh, fundamental difference that in deep learning we sort of test a lot of algorithms uh, that basically train themselves or extract themselves uh, from the data. Yeah. So in in deep learning, the algorithm is so to say the running variables. That's the that's the thing that you sweep through to find uh, which one best works. On the HDM side of things, it's exact opposite. We have one algorithm that actually doesn't change. Yeah. So as I said, regardless of where the data comes from, the neocortex is agnostic of what where the data comes from it just processes the data as it comes along and just where it enters the neocortex if it's in the visual region or in the auditorial region makes the data become a picture or a sound yeah so uh, that point that said what is important is to have a proper conversion of the data into something that this fixed algorithm can maximize its training effect. So actually, uh, let's pivot over to what you guys are doing, because uh, yeah. for HTM, as far as I can tell, the the most common use cases are time series and natural language understanding. And your company, yeah. Cortical.io, is doing a lot of uh, work in natural language understanding. So... What is yeah. it what is it about this technique that lends itself so well to natural language understanding? Yeah, we basically if you want extended the concept of HDMs by also adding an algorithm, if you want, that does the encoding of text as it comes along when we read or when we listen someone speak. The language comes along and as we perceive it, it needs to be converted into something to be fed into the HDM uh, of our neocortex. And so, uh, as I said in the beginning, there are these rather strict constraints on how this data has to look like. It has to be a sparse. So, uh, so you, you start out, so I'm just talking here as a data scientist, right? So traditionally, I start out with text, and yeah. then you have a bag of words. You convert yeah. that to vectors. Nowadays, yeah. of course, there's these vectorized representations like word to vec. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So whereas based on uh, what I gather from what you guys do, you turn it into this sparse data representation, which is this, uh, which is this two-dimensional matrix, right? Absolutely, yeah. So one of the requirements for the data is that it needs to be two-dimensional because the sheet of uh, neocortex is two-dimensional and it has to fit uh, uh, there. So uh, walk me through this, uh, Francisco. So I have, let's say, a uh, 
a paragraph? How do I get from the paragraph to this two-dimensional representation? So first of all, before we can do the actual conversion from text into a, a sparse distributed representation, which we call, by the way, semantic fingerprint, uh, it's much easier to say, what needs to be done is something very similar to what a human needs. Uh, so before you are, let's say, a, a, a medical doctor, you need to uh, go to school, to go to university, you need to read a certain number of books, you need to listen to a certain number of people speak until you have perceived sufficient data that allowed actually to uh, sort of create a semantic map of understanding, if you want, in your brain. Yeah? So you need to actually train your brain with input. Now, the difference uh, with uh, training, as you might see it in machine learning, for example, is that we don't need, uh, in order to uh, become doctors, we don't need to read uh, 5 million books. Yeah, The same as to become good car drivers, we don't need to make a couple of, bi of million uh, kilometers like, uh, like uh, the autonomous cars do. But we can sort of read a couple of books about a couple of things. And basically, from a machine learning perspective, uh, suddenly uh, we know about maybe not about every possible uh, utterance, but we know how to understand utterances in this semantic field. So after having read my medical textbooks, I know about the medical language and I know about what this language represents. And with that knowledge, I can now start to read a paper and I can understand this paper or the work that has been done and described in the paper, um, I can understand it so well that I could even extend it. Yeah, uh, And that's exactly what we are doing. So we are training a very sort of um, relatively small set uh, of training materials. For example, uh, to train what we call general English, uh, we took like 400,000 uh, pages from Wikipedia. And from there, we extracted a semantic map and this semantic map... So when you say train, is it supervised? It's completely unsupervised. You can imagine this like creating a self-organizing map of the training material from the Wikipedia page. And this material is cut into little snippets. So you're still using statistical patterns, right? So Not really statistical patterns. We're doing um, a competitive learning mechanism. That's true which is not statistic in the sense of that we have to model the data. But the only, the only uh, sort of output we want from this is the distribution of all the vocabulary over a two-dimensional map that has captured, if you want, uh, the, the, the context of the words. Yeah, and here you see already a first um, a first sort of difference between, for example, word to back. You have this uh, sliding window over a bit of text, and for every word there is observed uh, which are the let's say five words before it and after it, and the relation is sort of gathered. In our approach, we even consider utterances, if you want, which are like couple of sentences that do not contain both of the of the linked words but as they are positioned uh, on the same spot on the semantic map the system can infer although they never you never heard both of the words in the same sentence you can infer that they share the context oh and so the semantic semantic map is this massive uh, two-dimensional object 
Absolutely, and it's so. Uh, uh, so uh, yeah. the columns would be what every possible word. So basically, you can imagine that uh, every column receives like maybe a three by three square uh, of this map. Yeah, basically. Um, and what what turns out is that we don't need uh, enormous data structures. It turns out that a very smallish, if you compare this uh, uh, to sort of scales that you find in a real cortex, with a smallish representation of 128 bits by 128 bits, which gives you like 16,000 uh, features, that is enough to accommodate all of the English language in it, sort of, yeah, because, and, and you can, of course, sort of computationally verify, I mean, if you do a selection of 300 bits, which is about the 2% out of 16,000, there is a myriad of uh, possible combinations. So what, what are some applications? Are they similar to applications of word to vec Yes, they, but they go beyond that. So the point is that when we use our approach to convert text into this 2D vector, we can actually, we don't even need to have a network after it to train anything. We can literally take the representation of a word. So let's say uh, the word is a signed contract and I can uh, create another uh, representation for the word uh, done deal. And what I will see is when I overlay the two and they basically mean something very similar, I will see that maybe uh, 50 or 60% of the dots actually overlap. So I have a very cheap binary comparison, basically, that allows me to immediately find out the relatedness of two pieces of text without needing to do any training. So or any then uh, you can use it to find clusters of text. Yeah, you can. Uh, basically, everything that you have as text, uh, you can fingerprint and you can compare. Can you yeah. use it for traditional, the other traditional things that people do with text? For example, uh, find clusters, uh, absolutely build so, build the class text classifier. Yeah, even even more generic. I mean, we can do a search engine using this because I can convert any given document into a fingerprint. I can convert a query, which would be a literal formulation of what I'm looking for. I create a fingerprint of it, and by just overlapping the two, I could find the documents that best match in the semantic sense, where the, the documents that best match my query. I can, for example, uh, take your LinkedIn profile, where you describe yourself. I can make a fingerprint of that. I do the same with my LinkedIn profile, and we can see to what degree we have uh, common interests. What about this, right? So I have a, I have a sentence in English, and yeah. you have another sentence in French. Yeah, yeah. What would happen if you compare their uh, semantic fingerprints? Yeah, so that's that's very interesting. For example, because uh, as you might remember, uh, I said that the fingerprint tries to be the inner representation uh, of the concept. Yeah. So, uh, for example, I take the word cat. Uh, I make a fingerprint using an English train system. Then I take the word chat and I make a fingerprint using uh, a French, uh, a system trained on French. I will realize that both of the fingerprint basically match. They have like 90% overlap, which means that the representation of the word cat inside an English speaker is the very same as the representation of the word chat in a French speaker which basically um, 
has to be true. Otherwise, uh, things like translation or so wouldn't 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 work at all. Yeah. And and you of course are an entrepreneur with a startup, so you talk yeah, to companies. Yeah. So then, yeah. at some point, uh, do they ask you for well, how does the system work? Is it interpretable? How do you explain yeah. the mechanism? Do those yeah. things come up with the, the absolutely? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we have uh, uh, we start when we start. You know the whole the whole black box thing, right? So people yeah, are, yeah, unco- are uncomfortable with black boxes in many ways. Right? Uh, yeah, not not only uncomfortable, but there are use cases where you can't have something like that simply. Yeah, yeah. where it is too dangerous uh, to not be able to tune uh, the behavior uh, at some point or understand why something is not working. So uh, in our representation, you can actually um, drill down. Uh, into every single uh, feature of the representation, so in every single dot or in every single bit, and you will find uh, local contextual terms that are located there. So you can actually interpret every single pixel. Or, or, or I guess uh, if you have a specific application like a, a text classifier, you'll go, it got classified yeah, yeah. into this category, yeah, and then yeah. you can drill down all the way to Y. Absolutely. You can uh, find out why a document has been found by the search and why the document has been classified there. You can even go so far to, if you find a wrongly classified document, you can literally find out which are the bits that are provoking this. And you can adjust by setting or resetting the bit, you can adjust the classifier uh, fingerprint uh, to correct it. So you can, in fact, model uh, the perfect classifier, so to say, yeah. As long, of course, as the content is actually classifiable. I mean, we also encounter a lot of cases where, after inspection, it turns out okay, not even a human can classify this. Yeah, it's 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 sort of you have to rearrange your classes. Also, it can happen, of course. Actually, mm-hmm. let's make this even more concrete. And uh, yeah, and in order to do that, let's give the audience a sneak peek into your uh, upcoming talk at our at the O'Reilly AI conference in New York this coming June. Mm -hmm. And so the title of your talk is AI-Powered Natural Language Understanding Applications in Financial Services. So what are some examples of applications Mm -hmm. in financial services? So um, to us, uh, it was uh, uh, very interesting to see that uh, the early adopters in Adopters in the in in our sort of uh, customer community, if you want, came from the financial industry. Yeah, so the problems that people have there with uh, handling text, with automating text uh, issues, uh, actually are so relevant in terms of cost and financial pressure that they are really sort of early movers in trying to find uh, ways through that. Interestingly, uh, the we had a number of contacts with uh, several major banks uh, over the years. And what was interesting is that they systematically were trying out sort of standard technology, I would say, the the standard approaches uh, from standard vendors and so on, even tried some uh, to build it themselves by using uh, open source components, but were not able to actually get to a business viable solution. So what, what, what kind of business problems were they trying to solve? So uh, one of the first ones we encountered was, for example, compliance monitoring. 
So finding out if uh, people are communicating uh, inside trading information, for example, over email. Uh, so the, the, you know, the whole market for the financial industry is highly regulated. Uh, so the, the financial institutions, uh, they are sort of committed, they are obliged to monitor all the communication uh, that might happen there uh, to prevent unlawful uh, uh, mechanisms. Uh, but the problem is that if people want to do fraud, they know how to hide it. So they will not definitely say literally in their email, uh, do you want to buy some inside information from me? But they will use some uh, sort of uh, obfuscated language. And that basically makes it impossible to use, for example, a keyword-based approach in matching this. Yeah, You never know what people use as a metaphor. So creating dictionaries and things like that, that was sort of the approach they had till now. Um, this only sort of uh, uh, catches the very uh, easy ones. And in the end, every mail that goes through basically brings the risk of uh, very expensive fines uh, at the end of the year. And so, for example, the problem that to overcome this is that they have, of course, to have humans verify whenever uh, sort of uh, an email is tagged. Someone has to go there and see, is it really true? Because they have so many uh, false positives also in, in their selection. So... Were you uh, were you the one who told me that maybe it was you, maybe it was someone else? Uh, one of the applications of these type of technologies is just also analyzing contracts, financial yeah. services contracts, right? Exactly. I mean, uh, if you you can sort of systematically go through the big. Uh, text sources, if you want, uh, in the financial industry. Then there is communication, which we already had. Then there are contracts, of course. I mean, there are business constraints, clauses. Everything is formulated in words, even by specialists, by lawyers who know how to play those words uh, properly. And in the end, if you try to just make a simple full-text indexer over this document, you will realize how hard it is to find something just using a, a standard search engine uh, within uh, legal documents. Yeah? And what we are doing there is that we even go a step further. We actually try to identify what a contract is about and what entities come in play and how are they related to each other and how can they trigger, for example, some business processes when, when it's needed or, or things like that. And considering the fact, uh, not only banking, but also, for example, insurance, all these businesses have a lot of contracts. And the legal profession. Absolutely. I mean, they are crafting them. Uh, so it's important for them to become efficient in crafting it. Uh, but the users of these texts, the banks and the insurances, for them, they have contracts where there are a couple of billion dollars tied to it. You know, I mean, this is real scale money. And therefore, they are very motivated in, in improving this uh, in terms of quality monitoring, but also in terms of uh, discovering situations that need to be seen early to have uh, sort of less negative impact, maybe. Yeah. So what are what are you looking forward to in 2017 at Cortical IO? What's on your roadmap? Yeah, so uh, we have uh, two sort of tracks, uh, of course. There is the uh, more product-oriented track uh, where I think the most important thing we will uh, roll out this year uh, is basically an interface that allows a, a domain expert to define the domain directly uh, without having uh, to recur to a machine learning or, or, or semantic folding, in that case, uh, expert. So, How would they do that? How would they define? 
the domain. So the, the goal is to create a system where you could, using uh, uh, basic uh, content management skills, uh, you would basically allow uh, the domain expert to become some sort of librarian who sort of manages a collection of reference material. And by, uh, for example, compiling a specific set of reference material, you could then generate uh, some uh, reference fingerprints and you could measure uh, how well is it sort of represented. And by closing the loop, sort of by showing the domain expert uh, how well it overlaps with some reference uh, fingerprints, uh, the domain expert can find out, okay, there is this kind of vocabulary is uh, still underrepresented and can then add some documents containing this kind of uh, uh, vocabulary to the collection. And uh, like that, the, the, the expert can actually build through, um, through content management mechanisms a, a semantic space that can then be rolled out into, into production. So very, very kind of interesting example of augmentation. Yeah, so it's 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 not about uh, substituting uh, a human. It's in fact uh, to empower them, uh, to allow them to have a much higher throughput uh, in uh, doing things with language than they have uh, just by themselves. And the second part of what will be uh, very central uh, this year will be to actually connect our system um, to HDM networks. I mean, because everything I've told you so far basically runs by just converting text into this fingerprint thing. And then the engine just needs to do some Boolean algebra to get usefulness out of it. But there is a whole range of things that actually depend on the sequence of languages. So our current system, for example, would generate the same fingerprint for dog bites man and man bites dog would sort of generate the same fingerprint because the only thing the fingerprint says is that sentence is about man, about dogs and about biting. Yeah, But at some point, we also want to sort of go a step deeper and find in the sequence, in the grammar, if you want, uh, of, of, of the language, even more information. And in order to do this, what we need is a sequence learner, because we then need to learn sequences of words. And that will uh, come out of linking it with, uh, with HTM. And that will then give us things like uh, true sentiment uh, analysis, for example, regardless of how how you formulate it, if it's uh, formulated as sarcasm, the system should be able to do the interpretation. So how much work is this uh, linking and what's the timeline? So we have done already um, experiments with this. So we have used it as um, an anomaly detection unit for language. So that's uh, the, there is already uh, from uh, another uh, partner company, so to say, the the possibility to use HDMs in using Grok in the sense of monitoring anomalies of server data, which is basically coming in through numbers. Uh, and we have done a prototype still, but it uh, already showed to perform uh, uh, quite well to actually look into anomalies in sequences of text messages, and we took. Twitter uh, messages. So during the presidential campaign, we sort of uh, gathered all the candidates' uh, tweets uh, and we fingerprinted them. And uh, the HDM was trained on this continuous uh, uh, feed of, fin of, of fingerprinted tweets. 
and it is able actually whenever the candidate started to shift topic or to use language uh, that was uh, non-typical uh, for him, then uh, it actually showed with a spike uh, that there is an anomaly in the last message, for example. Interesting. This has been a great conversation. And, uh, yeah, thank you. Francisco will be speaking at our June event in New York. For those of you who are interested in uh, learning more about HDM and uh, Hortical.io, I'll make sure to place links at the, in the blog post accompanying this episode. Thank you. For more on uh, topics in data science, big data and AI, you should consider coming to our two conference series. The first one is called Strata Data Conference. You can find it at strataconf.com. The other one is the O'Reilly Artificial Intelligence Conference, which is at o'reillyaicon.com. You can follow Francisco Weber on Twitter at cortical underscore IO. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or tunein.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.